Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, our regular listeners know that when we last left you, you were hanging around in 1897 and eagerly looking forward to spending some time around the Roosevelt administration and taking in the accomplishments of the New Deal. The heyday of workers. Well, Jack, I have some bad news for you. I think I know what's coming. Fast forward to say the 70s and the really the the government run redistribution project kind of runs out of steam. Inflation spikes, we start to see jobs leave and the answer of the Democrats to this was really to begin to pivot and stress education. Go to college. Go to college. And now, you know, we've woken up, we're now in the uh we're well into the first year of the Trump administration, and it turns out that just go to college is an argument that doesn't resonate with a big chunk of the population. It turns out that some of the well-meaning folks who are trying to encourage uh, members of the working class to go to college are often viewed as out-of-touch elitists. We heard a lot about that word during the run-up to the election, and we're still hearing it, elitists. And we're our guest today is Joan Williams, the author of a new book called The White Working Class, an Exploration of Class Cluelessness. She wrote an essay for the Harvard Business Review right after the election, sort of exploring what the elites don't get about the working class and answering some of the questions that people woke up with the day after the election as they wondered, what what country is this that I live in now? I think I'm the only person who hadn't seen that article uh, until you sent it to me. Uh, it's apparently the most read article of all time in that publication, something like three and a half million reads. Um, and I, what it really illustrates is you know certainly she makes some excellent points in the piece but it also illustrates her point in a larger way which is that this was real news to three and a half million people who really did not understand uh, some of the sentiments and realities of the white working class. I should just point out that this is the first in a whole series that we're going to be doing on what is a very complicated topic. The topic of who should go to college uh, and what is it good for. As soon as you start asking that question, obviously you're you're in uncomfortable territory because you're implying that there are maybe people who shouldn't go to college. It's a tough needle to thread because you do want to address structural inequality in a way that creates more opportunity for people. But at the same time, you don't want to tell people what to do or disrespect their autonomy. Our guest today has been thinking a lot about these questions. She is the author of a new book called White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. And by cluelessness, Williams is referring to some of the many things that elites get wrong about the working class, which she argues is actually the fast-disappearing middle class. One of the things elites persistently get wrong— college. Just a third of Americans actually have college degrees, something that college-educated elites really have trouble wrapping their heads around. Yeah, I mean, at first people literally didn't agree with me. They just said that that has to be wrong. And then um, then somewhat later, uh, I mean, I was talking to, to people on Capitol Hill and they were going, yeah, everybody's talking about that statistic. I mean, people, people just, people who have, who've gone to college for generations and all, or who may not have, but 
all of their friends have graduated from college. They were they were just completely dumb with disbelief. Well, and that seems to speak to why we see some uh, segments of the population going to college at such greater rates that they live in worlds where everybody they know, including their families, have gone to college and that that then shapes uh, the way they experience K-12 education and shapes the decisions they make about whether or not to go to college uh, in a way that makes not going to college seem just completely impossible. It's an option that is truly off the table for them uh, and I think helps explain why uh, for so many people um, college is not an option because they they don't live in, uh, you know, college-educated bubbles where uh, that is the default option. Yeah, and in, in case, the, um, in, in case the, the kids outside of the sort of college-educated elite don't get the message, um, there's evidence that they are steered by college guidance counselors either not to go to college or to go to um, very uh, to institutions with a local rather than a national um, reputation. And so one of the things that people, um, the college-educated elite doesn't realize is that college is, has become a mechanism for transmitting class privilege across generations. Um, and there's been a, um, a good deal of focus on low-income kids and how we need to improve access for college to them and that they are disadvantaged in getting to college. But there's been... I think until the election, basically little or no understanding that the same is true for the middle 53% of Americans, the, the true middle class who are often called the, the working class. How much would free college change this conversation? That was obviously a talking point of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, but you, know, you, you say on the one hand that that might not be a sell for the white working class, that many of them are just not inclined towards college. But you also then identify a couple big roadblocks that keep this population out of colleges, namely sticker shock, seeing the price of college, even if that's not the net cost that they would pay. And then also this issue of debt. And I'm wondering, you know, how appropriate or appealing is the message of free college? The Bernie Sanders proposal, um, I mean, depends on college for all, depends on whether you mean a four-year degree or two years in a community college. But generally, the progressive elite has for uh, several decades, their solution to social mobility um, has been go to college. And if you want to solid middle-class life, go to college, go to college. There are a lot of um, very concrete reasons why middle-class kids um, aren't going to college. It's, as you point out, economically very risky um, to go to college right now. It's very expensive, and a lot of people end up starting college and then paying uh, many thousands of dollars in college debt on the wages of a high school graduate because they don't complete college. And middle working class kids are very well aware of that. Um, it's also literally harder for them to get into college uh, with the same credentials 
than it is for kids of professional classes. And as we've talked about, they often don't know the process and they're steered away from um, colleges uh, with a national reputation. And the divergence in earnings between, I mean, I went to Yale, Harvard, and MIT. That's good. If you can do that, totally go, right? But um, it's the difference between um, the likes of me, the earnings of the likes of me, and the earnings of somebody who went to a small college with a local reputation have sharply diverged. You have a chapter in your book called, Why Doesn't the Working Class Move to Where the Jobs Are? You could ask a similar question, I think, about college. Why don't working class kids just go to where the best colleges are? But that question really assumes a particular view of the world, down to what family relationships are like. Professional class kids, are they are, they are born to go to college. I mean, they're, they're uh, trained up from it intensively from a very small age. And the assumption within the family is that, of course, you love your parents, but you're going to travel hundreds or thousands of miles away to go to college. That is not the assumption in um, uh, in what's called the working class, really, really the middle class. There, the assumption is that you will remain in your parents' clique networks, their small, rooted, geographically um, based networks throughout um, your life, and that they you'll help each other with child and elder care and home repairs and. Families use these small um, clique networks composed of uh, family and close friends basically to protect themselves from their disadvantaged place in the market um, so they don't have to pay to buy the kind of childcare that you could buy for $4 an hour. Um, instead, grandma's taking care of the kids. And so when a, the, when a um, a middle class, one of these blue collar kids wants to go to two, 2,000 miles away to college. It's treated, um, number one, it's just treated as a bizarre, um, decision. Number two, it's treated as a kind of rejection often of where you grew up, um, <clears throat> and, uh, a statement that you don't know where you came from and that you got your nose in the air and you got a swelled head and people, uh, the become in a, this really difficult and uncomfortable class class situation that's almost never talked about, um, which I which I think of as class migrant guilt. On the one hand, people who are born in blue collar families who end up entering professional um, jobs and professional elites. On the one hand, their families may be very proud of them, but on the other hand. Their, their families feel this uh, sometimes as a rejection and the class migrants themselves don't quite feel they fit in at home and they don't quite feel they fit in in their uh, new professional environments. It, it can be a very painful situation to be in. And, you know, that's the good news. That's it. If you manage to get into a college that's actually going to enhance your earning power and you manage to... Um, get good grades, and you manage to uh, to graduate. That's kind of the best case scenario: is being in this um, sometimes quite painful uh, social situation. 
you just talked about how elite kids are groomed to go to college from basically the minute after they pop out of the womb. I thought your chapter on the enormous class divide and how kids are raised today was fascinating. Talk a little more about that. With the increase in economic inequality and the increase in um, the accompanying economic anxiety, uh, the fear of falling out of the middle class and the fear of not keeping up has become so intense that you have kids, um, the, 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 the definition of what it means to be a good parent, and really this is a good mother, um, in, in elite families is that you have to discover your, um, your child's every little micro-talent um, and develop it in the next millisecond, um, which really um, boils down to very, very intense and unrelenting performance pressures. And it's not good for elite kids who now um, sometimes report higher levels of anxiety than even inner city kids do. Um, But it does, um, unless the kids kind of implode, which they sometimes do under this intense performance pressure, it does put them in a, it trains them up for the kinds of um, competitive, edgy jobs that they're going to have. Whereas in the, in blue collar environments, and this is really all non-elite environments because blue collar kids are raised much more like poor kids than like rich kids. Um, they have, they've continued the kind of, um, ideology of natu- natural growth that I was brought up with of you clean them, you feed them, you clothe them, um, you love them and it'll be fine. Uh, and so you have this, um, this class differentiated childhoods leading to class differentiated futures. There's an assumption that a college diploma is enough to give somebody access to uh, the world of middle-class professionals. But of course, there's something else going on there as well for folks who have access to this world. And scholars would refer to it as cultural capital or maybe social capital. But really, it's about the way you talk, the shoes you wear, the experiences that you've had, the clubs you've belonged to, the sports you play. And I'm wondering if you can talk to the unwritten codes of professional life that aren't necessarily learned by white working class students who have attended college and that therefore make their diplomas actually less valuable out there in the world as they try to get middle class and uh, and high paying jobs. Well, yeah, I mean, J.D. Vance in Hillbillyology has a, a, a story about how he was on a job interview and he went into the the men's room and he called his um, girlfriend to ask her which fork to use. Uh, and that was so resonant for me because my mother, who was a Jewish girl from New York who married into a New England wasp family, remembered the first um, the first dinner she ever had at his house when she hadn't a clue which fork to use. And she was like, had a panic attack. Um, so I'm well aware, uh, but you're right. People often, um, they, we live in such bubbles that we don't, um, we don't understand all of these unwritten social codes that make navigating a, a, an elite environment often extraordinarily um, confusing. People who are born in blue collar families have a whole series of challenges in professional jobs that, are different 
from the challenges um, of kids born in professional families. Joan, I want to ask you about the politics of all of this. You point out in the book that really on both sides of the political divide, the prescription for economic mobility has been go to college. But the 2016 election really highlights the limits of that argument. You know, wages are stagnant. Income inequality is as wide as it was in the 1920s. And the people who are in the parts of the country where good jobs have left feel looked down upon when they're told by Democrats in particular that, you know, this is something that you need to fix. Go to college. What do you think about that? The assumption um, that if you care about your future, you will graduate from college is no longer um, a viable assumption. Um, you know, even in countries that have actually um, put their money where their mouth is, which we did not on the college for all ideal, only about half um, of of people graduate from from college. And the fact is, there are many important jobs that we need done that um, are not knowledge work. Um, you know, the, when I get up in the morning and turn on my tap, it's not because of some knowledge worker that water comes out. Um, what we really need is a new education to employment system where um, local community colleges or companies, there's a business opportunity here, work with local employers to identify the specific skills that those employers are going to need as we transition to an economy where 60% of jobs require interaction with robots. People are going to need technical skills, not necessarily a four-year degree. So they're going to what what are needed are certificate programs that are developed in conjunction with local employers and trusted by them, so that people can go back and get uh, a job that has enough value add to support a solid middle class life. And they're going to have to go back not once, but often twice or even more as those jobs um, transmute and disappear in the. Um, in the robot-driven economy of the future. I do think, as someone who's been teaching in higher education since I was 28 years old, we should not abandon the goal of making college more accessible to a broader range of people. That remains an extremely important goal. It's just not the only goal that we need to have. You make a pretty compelling case that not everybody needs to go to college and that there are plenty of reasons why the white working class tends to be less interested in college than other demographic groups. But it, there's also an inherent value to college. Uh, so how do you thread that needle? How do you recognize the fact that this may not be something that everybody needs to do while also trying to open up what is an inherently valuable and worthwhile experience for everybody who might uh, benefit from it. The risk of abandoning the college for all dream, um, well, the upside is that it was only a dream and it didn't happen. And um, even if it did happen, it would only help about half the people. But the the it has a, a real risk involved. It has to be done properly because in the past, People from blue-collar and low-income families were channeled into vocational school, whereas people, uh, whereas elite kids were channeled into college tracks, and that is not where we want to end up. 
um, <clears throat> we do need a respected track that leads to blue, blue and pink collar jobs. Uh, those are important jobs. I mean, the only reason I don't have breast cancer is because of the, the, the woman who does my mammogram. Those are really important jobs and they, they uh, require training and they require social honor. But we also need, um, uh, so we need to train people for those jobs and we also need a porous boundary um, between college and non-college tracks. And there we're actually in a lot better shape than many European countries where you make a rigid choice at age often 16 as to which track you're going to be on and there's no turning back ever. Um, in the United States, we have a tradition in higher education of um, allowing people back on the college track through a whole variety of different uh, different systems. Out here in California, we I'm proud to say I have probably the best public education system, certainly in the country, one of them in the world. And a lot of blue-collar kids go to college, um, either right out of high school or not, by starting out in community college, doing well in community college for two years, and then transferring to one of the, the UCs or the, <clears throat> or the um, California State University system. And that's that kind of second chance is really important to build into a system that has two tracks, one college bound and the other uh, a a technical track. That was Joan Williams. She's the author of White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. Not so easy to say, but a very brief and enlightening read. I highly recommend it. And Jack and I will be right back with some final thoughts. So Jack, obviously the issues that we've been talking about aren't just relevant to the white working class. In fact, just in the past few weeks, there's been new data that's come out showing that the push to get more African-American students into college has had the unintended consequences of widening the black-white wealth gap. And for a lot of the same reasons that Williams was talking about, taking on college debt turns out to be a much riskier proposition when you're starting out with less wealth and when you end up with a degree that isn't worth as much as maybe you thought it was going to be. This national discussion about college for all is somewhat disingenuous, it seems, because it doesn't acknowledge the fact that where you go to college matters tremendously. It's one thing to say that we're trying to open doors to higher education for all population groups with particular attention to historically marginalized groups. But embedded in all of this is the reality that some colleges open different kinds of doors and that four-year colleges open different kinds of doors than two-year colleges and that whatever door gets opened for you, it matters tremendously how much debt you end up graduating with. And so when we're talking about college for all, it's really important to talk about which college and uh, what are the details uh, with regard to you know, the the kinds of opportunities that this is going to be opening for people, as well as what are the costs? There's a statistic that you hear cited all the time, that college graduates earn a million dollars more in the course of their lifetime than a non-college grad. I wouldn't be surprised if we hear that figure cited in response to this very episode. 
But when researchers at Brookings started digging into that number, they found out something really interesting. It's actually skewed by a relatively small number of high earners who go into fields like finance and management consulting. Part of why kids from working-class backgrounds don't get as much from their degrees is that they tend to go into giving back fields like teaching and counseling, which, which raises kind of an interesting question. Is our goal then to get more kids to study business or economics? I hope not. I, I think that's the lesson we learned from the 2008 financial crisis is that we need more bankers. Uh, on a serious note, I think it's really important to interject the word meritocracy into this conversation because higher education is currently the place where we do our best play acting at living in a society that is a meritocracy. And we act as if social prestige and financial success are products of the merit that was revealed in someone's higher education experience. When in fact, it may be that college functions as a kind of laundering mechanism for inherited privilege that is just simply being passed across the generations. As a proud graduate of Eastern Illinois University, the cheapest school in Illinois at the time, I can say that I have plenty of merit. <laughs> <laughs> the college tour process when I was growing up consisted of driving a couple of hours in each direction. My sister and I got to pick from Eastern Illinois, Northern Illinois, or Southern Illinois. For some reason, we had both ruled out Western. But Jack, you have on an expression that I recognize as your I have something important to share look. You've been waiting very patiently, highlighters at the ready, and you have Joan Williams' book open to a particular page. Share a final insight with our listeners. We just spent an entire episode talking about the white working class, and many of our listeners may be wondering, well, what about the non-white working class? They certainly are closed out of many opportunities and face many of the same challenges. And I, There's a line in the book uh, that I think speaks really powerfully to the difference in attitudes between the white working class and the non-white working class. Joan Williams writes, when it comes to attitudes toward government programs, working class African Americans differ from whites in an important way. African Americans understand the structural nature of inequality. And that actually got me thinking back to our episode with Richard Rothstein, where he talked about the importance of understanding why things are the way they are. And that's where I wanted to end this episode, because as usual, it was a fairly dreary episode for us. Uh, that's our specialty. But uh, there is, of course, a way out of this, and it isn't simply to, uh, to empathize with the white working class, as we are often told to do these days, we elitists. Um, that you know, there's also, uh, in addition to that, a requirement to engage in a nationwide effort to understand why the economic and social conditions in this country are the way they are. Um, because once we understand them, we can then begin developing policies and programs that might actually address them, and we might actually be in favor of those policies. You're speaking my language, Jack Schneider. Other than neoliberal, structure is my favorite word these days. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And just a reminder that if you like the dreary content that we deliver in a zippy half-hour format every two weeks, stop by anywhere that you listen to your local podcast and give us a review, preferably a five-star review. 
And if you've got an idea for a dreary podcast, 